I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Bunyurong people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. It was uh, amazing to get the grapes from the first vintage I worked and just the power and concentration that the Shiraz gets up there is um, something to behold. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Tom Carson is General Manager and Chief Winemaker of Yabby Lake and Heathcote Estate. He is also one of the most competent, gifted and intelligent winemakers in this country. His peers speak of him with respect and adoration and anyone who drinks his wines with total awe and wonderment. I'm honoured to have him on the podcast. Hi Tom, thanks for joining me. Hi Shante. <laughs> thanks so much for making the time, I know how busy you are. Where are you joining us from today? Uh, today I'm at Yabby Lake Vineyard on the Mornington. Tom, take me back to one of your first memories of wine. Where did it all start for you? Well, uh, going way back, I suppose, my first ever memory was um, my dad took me up to a vineyard in Heathcote, <coughs> which was a friend of his called um, Lee Hunt. It was Huntley Vineyards and uh, uh, it was vintage day and I, I, I don't know, I must have been seven or years old or something like that and um yeah i just remember foot stomping grapes in a garbage bin um which was great fun uh, but that would be my earliest earliest memory that's a pretty tangible memory of wine to be <laughs> foot stomping grapes especially at some like an age like seven your father was uh, a keen collector of wine did his kind of impressions of wine have an impact on you yeah, well, he had a little cellar and uh, uh, with his brother, George, they would, um, you know, get out good bottles on, on weekends when they were together and and share and discuss the wine. So that sort of grew up with that uh, as part of, part of um, you know, sort of celebrating lunches and family get-togethers, uh, which was, you know, back back early when from when I was quite young. So I think that um, I always had an intrigue about it because the wines were you know treated with such respect and you know fussed over and talked about and it was sort of intriguing even even back in those days yeah I think that whenever like you said whenever somebody especially your parents in particular who you often look up to when they're you know quite involved or passionate about something you take it on board even if you don't understand it you kind of you know something's happening you know kind of in the background whether it be mum that's you know doing something in in wherever it may be, the kitchen or in a garden, and, and you can see the, the love. I think it does translate a bit, doesn't it? Well, sure. I mean, uh, I was uh, it, it piqued my interest for sure, and it, it took me a while to come back to it because, uh, you know, I've been back, you know, going through school and getting to the end of school, uh, finishing year 12, I was really unsure what I wanted to do. Um, and I'd, I'd started a food science degree at RMIT and I didn't really like that too much and dropped out and worked in a in a in a bottle shop for a little while and in a pub it had a little bottle shop and wine shop out the front um, which you know I was uh, intrigued by all the wines there um, so that was sort of starting to you know turned me around back to wine and uh, my cousin actually had a friend working in the Yarra Valley and uh, they just mentioned that they needed workers in the vineyard so I thought well that that sounds perfect I love the outdoors and went and uh, joined the team at Domaine Chandon way back in uh, 
1988, uh, and I worked a full year in the vineyard there with, um, you know, Dr. Tony Jordan uh, running things, and that was really fantastic and, um, yeah, got a real taste for it, and they'd started building the winery uh, there when I was getting towards the end of the year, and just met the winemaker there, Wayne Donaldson, who was just starting out, and yeah, he talked about study and what to do, and I just really hadn't thought you could, you know, go and study and be a winemaker. So it was just straight away I went, oh, that's fan- yeah, that's what I want to do, and uh, just enrolled in Roseworthy, and off I went. So it just uh, it's a it's a big circle, but uh, it came back around, and I haven't really stopped being involved in wine since since yeah back then yeah certainly not so did you enjoy you know kind of your days at university did you find that you you know loved some parts and hated others or did you enjoy all of it oh, i was fantastic at roseworthy because this was before we were actually the last year uh, before it shifted to university of adelaide so we were on the roseworthy campus for the three years and uh, it was quite a small group there was only about I think we started with about 32 and whittled down to about 25. So, you know, the 25 of us spent the three years together on campus. And because it was an agricultural college, uh, the wine science course was, you know, quite specific. So we all sort of mixed and and socialised together very yeah, very tightly as a group, and yeah, you know, I've still got uh, you know some really good mates that uh, went through uh, uh, with with uh, went through those years at Roseworthy, and yeah, it was just a fantastic time. We we were all immersed in wine and loving uh, exploring it and learning more about it, and uh, yeah, I mean, I don't remember all of it, but I do remember a lot of good things happening there. <laughs> I mean, first of all, being that there's you've got wine, you know, as um, something that you all enjoy, is that I mean you've got to get along pretty well. But also the fact that there was, like you said, down to twenty five, or you know, from thirty to twenty five. That's such a small class. No wonder you kind of get to know and become really good mates with a lot of them. I, I think that that's one of the best parts of university is is coming away with really good friends. So. Uh, I've heard that from Roseworthy. Nearly everyone that studied there has said something similar. So pretty amazing to be part of that. You uh, travelled after that. You travelled to Burgundy, I think, in 1992. What does a place like Burgundy mean to you? Oh, it's just a very special place. I mean, it was an incredible eye-opener for me, particularly just finishing, just graduating at the end of 91 from Roseworthy and having, you know, three years of you know, science and technical sort of winemaking stuff shoved down your throat and to go to Burgundy and and uh, just, you know, be immersed in the history of the place and um, just how um, they just speak about wine differently in France. You know, they speak about, about the place, the characters of the place, you know, the the, why the wines taste the way they do based on where they're grown, um, not by how they're made. And that was, uh, I think, early on, just to have that massive contrast between the Australian approach and then this really considered approach in, in France, in Burgundy in particular, um, you know, was just, yeah, really changed the way I, I suppose I thought about it. Um, and, you know, at that time in Australia, I'd, I'd just started working uh, with Tim Napstein in the Clare who was getting his first crop 
of Lenswood, Pinot and Chardonnay. And, you know, Pinot back in 92, <laughs> 1991, 92, you know, there wasn't much of it grown in Australia. And, you know, it was just a variety that I just, you know, being just experience, having that experience in Burgundy, it just, uh, I was just fascinated by it. And, you know, in Australia, there really wasn't a lot of it made and we're only just sort of entering into the cool climates, um, Adelaide Hills and Yarra Valley. I mean, there was only, you know, a handful of wineries in the Yarra Valley at that time. And some of them, you know, like Mount Mary, um, you know, Yarra Yearing, but particularly Mount Mary were really focused on, you know, growing really fine, cool climate varieties, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And it was just a great, great age, I suppose, to uh, be involved and just get into Pinot very early in my career, straight out of college, you know, working with uh, Tim Napstein, as I said, with Lenswood and then James Halliday at Coldstream Hills and uh, getting to know John Middleton at Mount Mary very well, John and Marley, and it was just uh, a great time. Just very fortunate to just arrive on the scene when Pinot was just starting to be talked about as, you know, we can make some good Pinot in Australia. So, yeah, really good. It must have felt like you were on the cutting edge of something, you know, to to be working in a place like Australia, which has a long history of winemaking, but be working with varietals that, like you said, there was so much unknown and you just got back from Burgundy, so you had a bit of an arsenal of, of experience. What was – I mean, and then you went to the Mecca. You went to, you went to Yarra Valley and so, like you said, you worked um, under James Halliday for a bit at Coldstream Hills and then at Yarra Edge Vineyard and then at Yering Station for 12 years. So tell me a bit more about the experience of, of being in the Yarra Valley. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. I live there as well still, so it's a beautiful place to live and – it's uh, there's a great wine community there, and I think uh, back in those '90s when uh, you know I was just out of college and you know, trying to learn the trade and and get experience. I mean, it, it just like loved the job, so loved working vintages and loved the the long hours and the hard work and the and the you know the creative side of winemaking. I suppose seeing these these wines come to life through through the year in the vineyard and then in the winery. Um, it was just, uh, just you know, head down, bum up sort of attitude. Just, you know, loved the job and loved, loved the hours and, and what it all meant. And just fortunate at that time, you know, the wine industry was expanding and people were in need of, you know, people to work. And it was just, you know, the opportunities to work around a little bit and uh, get experience, um, particularly in the era, was yeah, it was just a, a very, very fortunate time to be to be around. Was there ever a moment in those years where you made some something or you did something where you felt that something had clicked and you kind of went, "This is what I want to do," or "This was really successful," or you know, where where there's so much time that you spent there. What was a, a defining moment of, of making wine there? I suppose getting the job at Coldstream Hill was uh, um, a real moment, I suppose, being, you know, pretty green out of college and I'd worked, a, you know, one vintage in, in Burgundy and a couple of vintages with Tim Napstein, but, you know, a complete nut and novice, really. And to get a full-time job uh, working with James and Phil Philip Dow, who was a winemaker there at the time, <clears throat> just felt like, you know, I I I can make it here. This is 
this is a full-time job and, um, you know, really learning learning the ropes right through the year rather than just at vintage, um, you know, working out, you know, the whole process of finishing wines and maturing them and blending and, and just getting immersed in that. But that moment, I suppose, was, you know, uh, was it was really significant because, you know, to work with James, he's, well, it was James and Suzanne Halliday at the time. They, they owned it outright and they're just such fantastic people to work for, uh, you know, during vintage you know, Suzanne would cook us lunch and dinner and uh, James would just pull out these incredible wines, you know, during the vintage uh, and every night, it didn't matter how busy we were, we were pulled out of the cellar and plonked on the table at Coldstream Hills and, um, you know, there'd be four or five glasses of wine in front of you and James would play his, you know, options games uh, every single night of vintage. <laughs> Uh, and not just one bracket of four wines, but there'd be three three or four brackets. And then, you know, once we'd, yeah, but just an amazing uh, experience to taste all these fantastic wines from around the world. You know, top French wines, US, Australian wines, you know, young, old and in between. And just just to taste those wines blind and having to... Having to really think about what you're tasting, and and then getting the you know the explanation from James about what the wines are, where they come from, you know what to look for, was just you know a wonderful experience. Uh, and then you know once we'd finished that, uh, and this was literally you know for probably eight weeks of vintage, you know nine nine thirty at night, back out in the cellar, clean up and finish off the night, and we'll see you at seven o'clock in the morning. So a relentless schedule, but incredible experience nonetheless all absorbing it sounds like but sounds pretty incredible I don't know many people that would say they didn't want to be involved in that did you ever make any mistakes along the way you know just rookie errors or something you know where you felt completely out of your depth that you remember from that time oh there's always mistakes at vintage uh, processing errors where a bit of communication gets uh, gets lost about what we're doing and what what the order of uh, things are, but yeah, there's been you know spilt fermenters and uh, spinning roto fermenters when the when it, you know when the door was up and um, you know you know sort of processing accidents like that. There's there's been a few of those for sure. You know, turning the press, turning the filling the press and then pressing start, but forgetting to check that the doors were closed. Um, you know, rookie rookie mistakes like that. Um, but yeah, nothing significant. But lots of lots of spills and, and messes to clean up. For sure, um, but you learn. You learn to be. Um, I suppose you learn to be very thoughtful, and you know, always check your lines and check the valves, and you know, just spend that little bit of extra time if you're going to do something. Make sure you do it right. So, uh, you know, you, you're always busy and flat out, but you've always got time to, you know, make sure that you don't um, make a catastrophic error. But yeah, plenty of plenty of boo boos. That's for sure. I'm sure that the team around you wouldn't let you forget it anyway. So if you did do something quite silly, they'd be riding you for a fair bit of time. <laughs> yeah, well, they had an award at Coldstream Hills for the um, for the biggest blunder of vintage. I, th I think it was called the Craig Gas Award after one of the early vintage workers who um, left one of the aluminium shovels in the caustic bath, you know, to clean it overnight and came back and it had pretty much dissolved into uh, just a handle with a, a shred of aluminium left on it. And that, that, that was the award that was uh, awarded each year to, to the biggest stuff up of vintage. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I didn't win it, but I came close a couple of years. <laughs> 
<laughs> Not one of the trophies you want you want to win. That's um, I've heard a couple of things like that. A certain hat that someone has to wear if you've done something silly, and um, I mean, you know, sometimes that's the worst part is just getting getting ribbed by your mates for it. But <laughs> in two thousand and eight, you joined uh, Yabby Lake and Heathcote Estate Team. Tell me about working with the Kirby family, and tell me about why Mornington is capable of such incredible Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Yeah, it was uh, it was a big move to make. I've been at, um, I mean, you know, the Rathbone family, Doug and and Darren and and they gave me my first big break in um, 1996. You know, uh, appointing me as winemaker for Yering Station, and you know, at the looking back, I I don't know how they um, had such faith in me. Honestly, I didn't have a huge amount of experience. I certainly had a lot of passion for the job, but they. You know, they believed in me, and uh, and that was a that was a huge you know step up to go from sort of um, you know assistant winemaker or winemaker at Yarra Edge, which was a you know it was only a ten acre vineyard I was running then, to to go to Yaring Station and and the plans the Rathbones had and uh, the journey we went on uh, over those twelve years. So that was that was really you know amazing um, to see that place grow and uh, what we achieved there, but. Um, so Yabby Lake, it was a, it was a, you know, a tough decision to make to leave uh, Yering because the Rathbones are, you know, such great people to work for, and they just love their uh, their wine and their commitment to the industry is, uh, you know, really fantastic. So it was it was a tough call, but I just thought the opportunity here at Yabby Lake, I came down to have a look at the vineyard and. It's just a beautiful north-facing slope, and the planning and the, you know, that went into planting of the vineyard, the different clones, and on the soil mapping, and just just the way they prepared the vineyard for planting and established it. It just seemed like there was so much potential off this site um, that I, I thought had yet to be realised. I suppose it it was. They were only really making two wines off the vineyard at the time. It was, you know, Yabby Lake Chardonnay and Pinot. And there was just so much potential in this vineyard to do more with it and really understand, um, you know, what, what we can do with, the, with, with, you know, learning about the vineyard and the little idiosyncrasies of each little section of the vineyard and then sort of bringing that to life. So... Um, yeah, I really thought, wow, this is this is uh, can really sink my teeth into this job. There's a lot, there's a lot to be done, and and the um, Robin Mem Kirby, you know, felt like they'd really, they'd still yet to see the full potential of Yabby Lake. So they really wanted, they really wanted to, um, you know, to bring to bring it to, um, you know, the ne- next level, I suppose. So um, yeah, it was just been just a fantastic opportunity um, that I just you know, I, I couldn't say no to. So, yeah, that's uh, 14 years ago and and uh, we're still still chugging along. So, I mean, you spent, like you said, it was 12 years at Yering Station, so you had so much time to dig your teeth in and, and really experience what, you know, Yering Station had to offer. And then I think the Kirby family had it for 10 years, was it, before you – before you took over as um, as chief winemaker, yeah, the first first release was two thousand and two, so it was planted in um, ninety eight, 
uh, was first planted in 1998 and first release was 2002 vintage. So, you know, they've been going for sort of five or six years or five years in the market, yeah. So what was the first thing that you kind of noticed being, you know, you know, really involved in the Arrow Valley and then headed out to Mornington. What What are the first things you're noticing about how Pinot Noir and Chardonnay are growing out there? Yeah, it's quite, it's obviously close to the Arrow Valley, um, but climatically there's some, yeah, there's a couple of bigger differences down here. You know, we are very close to the coast and, and more maritime than the Arrow Valley. And, you know, that poses, you know, benefits and um, issues, I suppose, having, you know, being... I don't know, it just seems to be always windy down here, which can really play havoc with flowering. Uh, but during, you know, those warmer days during uh, summer, it, it really does help. That sea breeze does really help moderate um, the heat spikes. And, yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, there's a lot of similarities between the Pinots in 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 the Yarra and Mornington, but, you know, probably significant differences as well uh, in just in terms of, I suppose, tannin and concentration and, and colour we get uh, on the Mornington. There's just that little bit extra level of concentration and extract, um, which, you know, is, um, is, is, is great to deal with. You know, I think there's so much potential here with the Pinot uh, on the right site to really make some incredibly... Profound pinots and quite age-worthy ones as well. And, you know, since kind of the beginning at Lab Yabby, they have been working with kind of single block releases. Does that just give you the opportunity to really kind of compare and contrast and just look at kind of, you know, what each little plot has to offer? Yeah, I suppose it's a sort of a Burgundian mindset on, on how to um, understand the site is to take every little section that is that is different due to soil or variety or clone or, or aspect and make that as best you can into a, a separate wine and then, you know, understand what viticultural practices and what winemaking practices are really working, you know, coupled with the vintage conditions, you know, what what is the best way to bring out the best um, in these uh, sections. So originally it was just to learn about the site and understand uh, which parts of it uh, producing which types of wine and then how to sort of craft our winemaking and viticulture around what each parcel can potentially give. And um, so, you know, it's 100 acres here. So we, you know, in a, in a normal year, we can make sort of 45 to 50 separate parcels off the vineyard. And that just gives us a great, you know, palette, I suppose, to work with in terms of blending the single vineyard wines and red claw. And then if we do get those little special batches of wine off particular parts of the vineyard that we just find, uh, you know, outstanding and, and, and just shouldn't be blended away, they just demand to be bottled separately, we'll, we'll do that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a combination of, you know, just, I suppose, attention to detail in the winemaking and viticulture side and then, uh, you know, then just looking at, at um, you know, the business side of, of winemaking and, and how we can, you know, best maximise what we've got here. In 2012, the Block One Pinot Noir made history by winning the Jimmy Watson Trophy. So the first time Pinot ever took the gong uh, in its 52-year history at that time. What did that moment mean to you? Oh, it was a fantastic night. It was... Uh, I suppose for me, um, I just thought it was, you know, really an award for 
you know every Pinot maker. It was for it was for everybody who loves Pinot and is committed to Pinot. That uh, you know it could it could win an award like that. So it was sort of accepted on behalf of all people who were committed to making good Pinot. Uh, but personally, you know, it was it was a wonderful moment. Um, you don't. You know the awards come come and go, but that was that was a, a special one, an historic one for Yabby Lake, and and you know for me, I was yeah for the winemaking team, we were we were absolutely stoked, and uh, we still open that wine every now and then. It still looks fantastic and is just yeah amazing at ten years of age as well. So um, yeah, it was wonderful to accept it on behalf of all the Pinot lovers out there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I think, you know, you've got to have so much commitment and drive to be working with some of these varieties, especially in the country at the, at the time where a lot of people perhaps poo-pooed it a little bit um, because we're so strong in other varieties as well. So it was really a huge benchmark um, for Pinot Noir and I just can't imagine being there at the time and and I suppose it probably sank in a little bit later as well but I, I think you know you've had a vision ever since you you know like you said you were working in the Claire of that these varieties are going to work so well um, and I'm sure that it hasn't been easy along the way. I want to ask you a bit about Chardonnay because I could probably base this whole podcast on just talking to you about Pinot Noir and Chardonnay but <laughs> I also want to hear some, some, some something from you as well so um, your experience with Chardonnay in your career, we get a lot of stories. We often hear the old hash story about how Chardonnay's changed in the years. But I want to know from you, how have you seen the varietal handled over the years and, and where do you see Australian Chardonnay headed in the future? Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I, it, it, I suppose it's changed for a lot of people, but um, working in the Yarra very early on, uh, you know, working at Coldstream Hills. And as I said, I got to know John Middleton, you know, John and Marley quite well. And we would often go around there uh, for dinner and, and, and talk about wine and uh, always had just massive admiration for the, you know, the, the Mount Mary Chardonnays that John was making, you know, back in the 80s. And, you know, they were 125 12.8% alcohol, you know, not heavily oaked, uh, no malo, beautiful sort of mineral line through the wines and just, you know, just really wonderful Chardonnays. And it was, you know, I learned a lot from him about, you know, what cool climate Chardonnay should taste like and what the balance should be. Um, you know, they, 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 you don't need to make them into these massive, big, you know, oaky, over-the-top ripe things that everybody was fascinated with Chardonnay at the time. Uh, if you understand the site and the, and the potential and the region, you can make these, you know, these wines that just have absolutely beautiful balance straight out of the vineyard. You don't need to mess with them too much. So I think um, or mess with them at all, really. You just, you know, pick them at the right moment and natural ferments in, in um, oak and away you go. Um, so I think at the time, Cool Climate Chardonnay was definitely underappreciated and misunderstood. And I think the journey that we've gone on partly in Australia is people have just understood how, what, how amazing these cooler area, cooler grown Chardonnays can be in the hands of people who know what they're doing. Um, so I think that has certainly um, been a big part of the Chardonnay journey from the, you know, sort of sunshine in a bottle attitude to, you know, super fine and really detailed wines coming out of cool areas. And 
today, you know, over the last decade, we've just seen, you know, an, a, an explosion of great Chardonnay in, in Australia, for, particularly from the cooler areas. Um, and that's rubbed off on all Australian Chardonnay. Um, you know, even I think, you know, Margaret River Chardonnay's never been as good as it as it is now, whereas, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, they were they were pretty big and full throttle, you know, the ripeness was a bit over and they've understood, you know, the best Chardonnays now out of Margaret River are fantastic. They've got a beautiful line and they contain that concentration and that minerality is in the wine and they're making the best Chardonnays I think they've ever made. So I think the whole Australian scene has, you know, learnt and understood and interacted and, and um, fed off each other about what how good Aussie Chardonnay can be. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think that sometimes, you know, when you talk about wine, you're often talking about texture and you're talking about line and length. And and I think that, you know, we've we talked about that overt fruit that we do ha- need, we have and we can maintain. But I think it is interesting to think about a wine you know, way after it's past your lips and way, way down the line there and talk about what's still happening minutes after. And, and, and that's something that you always kind of speak about. And I think it's really important as well, because they tend to be the wines that are, that live in our memory when we taste them and think, God, that's so detailed. And it's just lasted on the palate for, for, you know, minutes longer. Yeah, well, it's the sign of a great wine, isn't it? The, the palate length and the balance. Um, it's uh, it's definitely what we're getting in Aussie Chardonnay. The best of them right now is, um, you know, I suppose uh, being accused, you know, these people saying is, oh, they just picked early and that's that's why they're, you know, they're all too lean and acid. But that's just a complete misunderstanding of what is happening. <laughs> With the best Chardonnays and the best the best Chardonnays do have this beautiful mineral line, but we've also got the the sort of fat on the bones, the concentration, and that that sort of pithy phenolic drive that the best Chardonnays have are just producing these wines with in, incredible length and purity. And uh, yeah, I mean, you look at the price of white Burgundy at the moment; you'd be mad to buy that when you can, yeah, you can buy Oak Ridge Chardonnay and you know, for 60 bucks a bottle that are equal to some of the best wines around. Absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think, like you said, sometimes it's not the wine that maybe leaps out at you that's so kind of um, obvious. It's that, like you said, looking in a little bit further and then you start to see the wines that, that like you said, are just as powerful, but they've got more nuances and more kind of um, – intricacies perhaps than other wines as well but you've kind of come full circle with the Heathcote region you work there with Shiraz and a few other varieties and your work has really driven the acknowledgement of the region for high quality wines tell me about what you love about Heathcote yeah Heathcote was a real challenge uh to to uh, start up there I'd never made any wine out of Heathcote and it was uh you know, first visiting the vineyard when I first um, started with um, Yabby and Heathcote and just looking around at, um, you know, the Cambrian soil up there and, you know, how the vines grow in it and the topography of the site. It was just a really, really beautiful vineyard with this incredible deep, rich Cambrian soil on it. And it was um, amazing to get the grapes from the first vintage I worked and just the 
power and concentration that the Shiraz gets up there is um, something to behold, you know. Uh, a, a day after being on skins, they're just black and, you know, loaded with tannin and extract and it's like, yeah, it's not a question of um, getting everything out of it. It's like taming them and, and trying to shape them a little bit and not overdoing it. But, uh, again, with the with the vineyard, we sort of broke it up into sections and and really worked with, um, you know, some subtle different soil type changes across the, across the vineyard and then in the winery also tweaking, you know, the way the wine had been made in the past and then what we found was producing better results and, you know, we've we've um, we've really changed quite a lot what we do over the 12 years uh, from when I started. I mean, the first thing I did when I started was to sell the machine harvester that they had in the shed. They would machine pick everything, so we, we that was uh, that was on the market the, the day after I visited. And uh, you know, so we went to hand picking, and um, you know, a lot of uh, the previous wines were you know fermented in. Um, Red fermenters, so sort of closed stainless steel tanks. We went all to open fermenters and purchased some, you know, um, oak fermenters as well. Uh, and, you know, really been tweaking the amount of whole bunch we use in the wines. And uh, I suppose the biggest thing, I think, was just understanding, um, you know, the time to pick the, when, the, when the grapes are, uh, are ripe. And I think a lot of... A lot of uh, a lot of Shiraz in Australia is sort of picked on numbers, and um, we, we with everything we do here, we really try and pick on flavour and balance. And so we definitely sample and have a look at the numbers. But you know, we can start picking Heathcote Shiraz at just in the low twelve Beaumets because uh, the flavour's there and the fruit's just in absolutely beautiful condition. It doesn't happen every year, but it can happen some years. We'll be picking at sort of twelve Beaumets, making you know twelve and a half, twelve point eight percent alcohol Heathcote Shiraz that just uh, don't lose any of the of the hallmarks of Heathcote Shiraz, but they just have much better balance and freshness and texture and. Um, yeah, that's something we really work on. And, you know, we don't over-open. We age them all in 500-litre puncheons and uh, a small amount of new. And, yeah, we've really sort of shaped the way we, we make the wines there. And I think, you know, each year we just think, um, yeah, the wines are getting more refined, more detailed and, and just uh, better expressions of, of the from the vineyard. The Heathcote single vineyard Shiraz is been a defining wine for me that's that kind of flicked a switch in my brain to understanding you know um different climatics um expression of shiraz and the 2020 is no different incredibly concentrated um it just feels like you've got tiny minute berries because it's just got so much flavor and and so many savory qualities i, I absolutely love the wine but um how did how did you in your experience how did it go presenting that wine you know to consumers and and also in in wine shows and did you find that it, it kind of floored people from the get-go or did people have under, a hard time understanding it oh it depends i suppose um i think in wine shows uh, the last couple of years it's actually done quite well um we've <clears throat> won a you know the 2017 i think it was the first Heathcote wine to win a, a wine of show at uh, Sydney 
uh, Royal Sydney Royal in 2018. So it scooped the pool and ran through and won five or six trophies, which was a, a real moment for Heathcote. Um, so it, it has, and I think, yeah, I think, I suppose it's the way we've um, just tried to tame the vineyard a little bit without just letting it go, you know, full throttle. The, the thing with the, the Heathcote tannins are they, you know, they are incredibly tightly packed and savoury. And if you overdo it, the wines do have a sort of, yeah, real drying sort of back palate to them. And that's really what we're focused on is trying to, you know, not overdo the extract and get, get the right type of tannins out of the grape and just keep that, you know, some of the flesh on the bones and that textual, you know, mid palate that Shiraz needs. Um, so that's something we've really worked on. And I think it's been appreciated in, we've seen some better results in the show since we've really, you know, combined all these little things I just spoke about have sort of come together and we've, we've got a, a sort of a new philosophy on how to get the best out of Heathcote Shiraz. And um, yeah, I mean, consumers, um, yeah, they've got a, an understanding of Heathcote um, particularly in Victoria, it's a very popular region in in Victoria. Most of our sales are in Vic- Victoria, but uh, when you get out of Victoria, um, yeah, people are really interested in what he gets about um, and what it tastes like and what they should be looking for. So, yeah, it's um, it's been very well received. Yeah, only onwards and upwards for Heathcote, I think. Well, you're so engrossed in the industry, you're, you often call yourself obsessed, but between wine judging and wine making and consultation and drinking, if we take wine out of the equation completely, what else do we find? What else do we find Tom Carson doing day to day? Oh, he loves the game of golf. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my sort of release to get out on a Saturday morning, have a, have a good hit of golf. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's a real pleasure for me. And I've got a few mates that uh, we play with every week. And, yeah, it's great, great to get out on the course. And, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging game you can never master. So I, I don't know whether there's some similarities with wine there that uh, it's something that you've just got to keep trying at. It doesn't surprise me at all. Patience and minute detail and, t- you know, just the long game. It doesn't surprise me that you said golf at all. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Tom, if you had absolutely had to drink only three drinks for the rest of your life, I know it's a pretty tough question, but what what would they be and why? Well, I, I have listened to a few of your episodes and I, my immediate response was, you know, coffee, wine and whiskey, uh, Japanese whiskey. Mm. Um, that's, that's the quickest response I can give. And if you want to break it down... Um, I don't know. I can't choose between wine because if it's good, uh, you know, I just have a great appreciation for it. Doesn't matter what variety it is. And yeah, Japanese whiskey is just really, really interesting. Steve Panel got me into it a few years ago, and uh, just been loving um, trying and how they've just managed to make these fantastic whiskies. There, it's incredible. And the day doesn't start. But you don't go anywhere without a coffee. So. Well, that is very true. And and in a short period of time, you know, Japanese whiskey is is just yeah a roller coaster of excitement so we'll blame steve panel for the um the bank account later down the track i suppose suppose <laughs> exactly yep <laughs> tom it's been such a pleasure thank you for letting me pick your brain today i've really loved spending time with you i really appreciate it and um i can't wait till we uh our paths cross again and we can uh, have some more tasting or do some more wine judging together 
Great. Thanks, Shante. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.